Luke chapter 11. Their creation is shrouded in mystery. Their presence in this world unseen. Their precise function is not entirely clear. But make no mistake, there is a spirit realm. And that realm is inhabited by angels and by demons. God created angelic beings of various rank at, the, at an unspecified time of creation. But somewhere during those first six days, one of the most magnificent of those beings we know today is Lucifer, or son of the morning. Pastor Pratt read earlier here from Ezekiel chapter 28, and we see there Lucifer being full of wisdom, sinlessly pure, perfect in beauty, and serving in the very presence of God. But inexplicably, Lucifer shifted his adoration away from his Creator, and he shifted it to himself. Filled with pride and in rebellion, he left God, or was in fact expelled from the presence of God. But Satan's powers were not diminished. As we looked at that passage there in Ezekiel chapter 28, I think the, the destruction that is evidenced there is pointing back to the king of Tyre. And certainly it is pointing prophetically to the greater destruction of Satan that will come in the end. But you know that when Satan was expelled from the presence of God, he was not diminished at that point in his powers, diminished in his place and in his work, certainly uh, protecting and hovering over the glory of God. But he still has tremendous powers. His magnif this magnificent being quickly gathered a following of fellow angels, sweeping them into his rebellion. And so many were the angels that followed Satan, and so significant then became their combined powers that Satan is said to preside over a kingdom. Think about that for a moment. He wasn't just fired from serving in God's presence. He has left God's presence with those same capacities and powers and presides now over a kingdom. These creative energies, this superior wisdom corrupted by his departure from God sent Satan on a warpath against humanity and with evil intent he tempted Adam and Eve with that forbidden fruit and he succeeded in luring them into his rebellion. The results were disastrous, as we know, and they were far-reaching. And from that moment in time, Satan continues to traffic his rebellious and destructive ways. And we see it everywhere. It's on the front page of the paper. It's in the evening news. It is everywhere that we look. Nation goes to war against nation. Through the centuries, countless numbers of people have been slaughtered by warfare, while scientists compete in our day to find new ways to kill more people, and Satan shrieks with glee. And even those who find themselves in these battles, even those who are in the right and just and seeking to protect people and justice, have to do so by slaughtering other people. It's the world in which we live. There's no way around it. We see genocide 
and you hear the facts and they are so mind-boggling. We cannot really filter them unless we're in the middle of it. Genocide and ethnic cleansing and the wide-scale destruction of property, oppression of the weak and the vulnerable by dictators. And coupled to all of these evils on a grand scale, we see it on the narrow uh, plane every day of our lives manifesting itself in Satan's influential kingdom, leading and tempting and directing murder and materialistic greed and racial prejudice and rape and adultery and promiscuity and pornography and abortion and divorce and scandal and slander and gossip and drug abuse and theft and lying and law-breaking and factions, destructive anger, disrespect for authority, and on and on it goes, and we know that it's there. In God's grace and in His mercy, He protects us. In His merciful grace, we don't see it all at once, but everywhere we look, it leaks out of people. This depravity. All of this an evidence of human depravity. But we're looking at it a little differently this morning because of the context that we're coming to, and we see in this not only the depravity of the human being, but we see also in all of this sin and wickedness and destruction, we see the finger of Satan in our world. And if you do not see the finger of Satan working in this world on a broad scheme or working in your life and around the people that you know, then you are simply delusional. It's everywhere. Human beings alone, do you understand? Human beings alone are not capable of all of this wickedness. We are capable of carrying it out. We are fully capable of rebelling against our God, but putting it all together in this destructive force, working together against the glory of God, we are not in ourselves capable of the evil that we witness on this planet. Humanity is under the influence of the kingdom of Satan. But all is not lost, is it? For we filled this room today with song, with rejoicing, and joy. There is hope. We gather on this Lord's Day to announce to this world, whoever will watch, whoever will see, whoever will listen, and we gather on this Lord's Day to encourage one another with this truth. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has invaded this fallen world and has broken the back of Satan's resistance against God. That's why we're here, to rejoice in His name and to say we're not hiding from the facts and the reality of the wickedness of this world. But we are together saying Jesus came and he defeated the forces of Satan. We witness this truth, truth ultimately at the cross and we witness it at the empty tomb. But this truth was also demonstrated before we come to that place in history in Jesus' acts of mercy with people and in his teaching about the powers of darkness. 
This truth is demonstrated in the life of Christ, and we find it specifically here in Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14, where we left off last week. On the authority of this passage, we may assert with confidence, first of all, that the demonic realm is subject to Jesus. The demonic realm is subject to Jesus. We see this as Jesus, first of all, exercises a demon in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. We look at this demon just for a moment. This shows, I think, the raw evil of Satan's kingdom, does it not? Let's not read these texts and just pass by them. He has a guy demon-possessed and he's mute, and Jesus allows him to speak again. Think of the evil that goes into this. Satan is bent on causing human misery. This demon's sole purpose is to steal away from this man the ability to communicate with other human beings. That's what he likes. That's who he is. That's how his kingdom operates. You mute demon, fill this man and don't let him talk to anybody. I presume that the majority of demonic activity is oriented toward tempting people to sin rather than causing them to suffer physically, harming them physically, although will we not say every physical ailment is itself a temptation to sin against God? And I think we should also assume that most physical maladies have a biological source resulting generally from the fall. When we have sickness, When we have injury, when we have disease, we can, I think, to some degree assume that there is generally, it is generally a result of the fall with undoubtedly an element of demonic influence there and a rejoicing in our uh, ailment and frailty on the part of Satan. But I don't think that it would be wise for us to take this one place, this one occasion, and to jump to conclusions that every sniffle is a demon possessing us. In fact, I think that would be just flat wrong. But this man's muteness, we are told by revelation, is in fact owing to the influence of Satan in his life. A demon possessed him, a mute demon that would not allow this man to speak. Now, we also, I think, need to understand this is a unique period of time. There is an increased visible, the increased visible activity of God is paralleled by a dramatic increase in the visible activity of Satan. I think we can conclude that from what we see in Jesus' life and from the way that the people who were around Jesus, particularly his enemies, responded. I pictured it in the past as if you walk through a field of tall grass on a summer day and you look behind you, if the sun is just right, you might see that as you're walking, you're stirring up all kinds of insects. You can look off to the either side where you're not walking and you don't necessarily see any insects, they're all there. But as you're walking through this tall grass, they're rising around you. You're stirring them up. I think that is a picture, in a sense, of Jesus' ministry on earth. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He stirred up a lot of satanic activity. God permits 
His Son to come to earth commissions Him to come to earth and to minister here among us. The playing field was evened out, and Satan, I think, was also given unique opportunity to demonstrate his horror and his evil in this world during the time of Christ. And so we see much demonic possession, and the people surrounding Jesus understood this. That does not mean that we will necessarily see that type of activity here at this time. We might find it in other places of the world. Much of it perhaps is hidden, but let's remember, the bugs are in the grass. They're all there. They may not get stirred up quite as noticeably in our setting. Perhaps they are and we don't see it sometimes, but they are there. As we look at this passage then, what we need to understand with those uh, qualifiers being uh, stated is that this man is healed of his demonic possession, or is the, he is, the, the demon is cast out. And the crowds are amazed. We find, in fact, a threefold response to this exorcism. First of all is general amazement there at verse 14. The crowd was amazed. Matthew 12 adds the possibility that Jesus was Messiah. It's being widely discussed by the people. Not too many of them embracing that idea, but there is certainly amazement on the part of the people who observe what Jesus has done. But there is another and very sinister response in verse 15. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, if we really catch that, it should really send chills up our spine. This is the power of God demonstrated in this world attacking, assaulting the powers of darkness, and there are people who can say, Jesus is with them. It's that wicked. Beelzebub, meaning translated Lord of the Flies, has a long history to it, and I won't uh, bore you with that history here. Suffice it to say, it became to mean Satan. It was a reference to Satan. And they understand, in other words, what they are saying. And by using this word, they're saying it very specifically. It is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. So apparently some of Jesus' detractors get together and they say, you know, I, I think I've got this figured out. You know why this untrained rabbi has so many powers with the demonic realm? There's only one answer to this. He's on their side. He's in cahoots with Beelzebub. Do you notice they don't deny that Jesus has power, do they? There's too much evidence to the contrary. They know as a group that this individual was demon-possessed. And they know that Jesus delivered him from that power. But they say Jesus is with the devil. There's a third response in verse 16. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. If there's any evidence of God's grace, it is certainly here. Jesus has been moving around Galilee, delivering people from satanic oppression with great consistency. He has been healing people of diseases that no one can cure. He's been performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and they say, give us a sign from heaven. Thank God I'm not Jesus, but the sign I'd give is to evaporate them on the spot. 
What more do you want? What they want is something fantastic, something bigger, something greater. What Jesus, of course, knows is that showing them something greater will only drive them further into their depravity. They don't want to hear. They don't want to believe it. What more could they want? Jesus will rebuke this unbelief. We won't look at it today, but to verse 29, if you want to just notice it there, he will rebuke this unbelief and this call for a a greater sign from God and from Jesus. But at this point, he addresses, really in some respects, the greater difficulty, and that is with those who respond that Jesus is aligned with Satan. His defense begins in verse 17, and I think it's very significant that Jesus defends himself. It says, first of all, that the attack is very significant, that he will take the time to actually address it. He realizes what these individuals are saying. Again, I think it's very gracious, but think of this. The Son of Man, who's just delivered a man from demonic oppression, has to defend himself that he is not in fact, has not in fact joined with Satan in his kingdom. This is a very crucial point. Jesus begins in verse 17. He knew their thoughts, and he, apparently they haven't said this right to his face, but he knows what they are thinking. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. Pretty simple point, right? We can see it historically. I think of the Roman Empire. Toward the end of the Roman Empire, the military generals were so preoccupied with fighting each other that they let a barbarian warlord walk right into Rome and sack it. And they weren't really so concerned that that had happened. They were more concerned with the other general and who was winning with the armies. It was a house divided and it could not stand. And in the end, it did fall to the Germanic tribes that overran the empire. Because it was a house divided. We understand the concept. Abraham Lincoln used this very phrase, this very idea to speak of the difficulties of civil war. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We know of some diseases where the immune system is, actually attacks the body. It sees itself operating to protect and help and cure the body. And what it's actually doing is eating it away. A body divided against itself cannot live and cannot exist. What is the point, verse 18? If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. If I'm with Satan, Satan's kingdom is being destroyed by Satan's kingdom. That makes no sense. Kings do not destroy their own castles. Kings do not send out armies to defeat their own armies. An opposing football player might break a leg of another player. That happens in the the course of a game. But you have never seen or ever will see a coach going along his own bench and taking a sledgehammer and breaking every leg that he sees on the bench. At least you won't watch it for long. I mean, they'll put him away. That, That doesn't happen. This is ridiculous. It is irrational, their idea. Now, somebody could say, well, you know, maybe once in a while this could happen. Maybe Jesus does cast out this demon just to give people the idea that he's not on Satan's side. 
Let's put that to rest. Remember the people as we saw them in Luke chapter 4, as we see them in Luke 8, and in Luke chapter 9, there's people that are lining up to be healed by Jesus. He is assaulting the kingdom of Satan. He's like that football coach, if this is the case in their thinking, he's like that football coach going down the bench and breaking every leg on, the play, on, his, on his team. No. It could happen once, it could happen a few times, but not what Jesus is doing. It's irrational to say that he is in league with Satan. Verse 19, Jesus continues, Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, he has another point to make here, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. There were apparently Jews who were not followers of Christ to whom God graciously gave the power to cast out demons. As I mentioned, this seems to be a time of tremendous demonic involvement, physically, externally, visibly to people. And apparently God gives to certain Jews the ability to cast out demons. There's some who would take this a different way, but I think that's the most natural reading of the text. There is some indication from Jewish historian uh, uh, Josephus that this was in fact the case, that there were Jewish exorcists who were casting out demons. And Jesus, I think, just appeals to them there, to, to these people here, and says, listen, if I'm in league with Satan, how do you answer these others who are casting out demons? Your own followers who are able to cast out demons. They will be your own judges. You can guarantee that they're not going to link me up with Satan because it would link them up with Satan, and they know that that's not the case. So I'll let them be the judge. But, verse 20, if I drive out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come to you. Here's the truth. When I cast out a demon, you are watching the kingdom of God defeat the kingdom of Satan. Now, obviously, the kingdom of God is not fully established here. Jesus is not ruling from Jerusalem's throne at this point. But he does say that at this place, what you are watching is the kingdom of God, which has come upon you in this place and time and moment. And he illustrates this point in verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. Verse 22, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and he divides up the spoils. What is Jesus saying? By casting out demons, Jesus is assaulting the kingdom of Satan. He's the strong man. But Jesus is stronger. Jesus is winning. Christ's superior kingdom power is displayed over Satan's inferior kingdom power. It's kingdom power. Satan has a kingdom. He has the power, but Christ is a superior strong man. His kingdom reigns supreme. Now there's a vital implication for all of us in this. I think what Jesus has established at this point is that the demonic realm is subject to Jesus. There's no way to reason around it. The evidence is there. The demonic realm is subject to Jesus. He is the stronger king. But this leads then secondly, as Jesus drives this point home by application, secondly, you are either subject to Jesus or to the demonic realm. There's two kingdoms here. There's Jesus' kingdom and there is the demonic kingdom, these two forces in battle. You're with one or the other. 
The statement is made in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. The sides are clearly divided. You are either with Jesus against Satan, or you are with Satan against Jesus. Whether the gathering and scattering here reflects a shepherding theme or a harvesting theme, commentators differ. The point is the same. You are on Christ's side or you are against him. Think of these people here. They have seen the power of God. They've watched it. It's been demonstrated before them. All they can do is identify with Christ on this point or identify with Satan's kingdom. That's the only option that's left for them here. And you know the same is true of us in some respect, in some way. I don't think that it is common experience for us to watch someone cast out a demon so obviously and so dramatically. But there is evidence of God's work in this church and in our families and in our individual lives and you have seen the transforming power of God. And I think certainly in our setting, in our day, in this place, and if you spend any time with this church, you have witnessed the transforming power of God. There are people who have come into our assembly and they have said one thing that is clearly against the authority of Christ. And sometime later they have come and said something radically different and believed it with all their heart. And we have watched people who are enslaved to sin be freed from those sins and walk with Christ. You have to come to terms with what's happening there. Now, we understand this can all just be some external moral reformation for a period of time. We cannot judge who is truly transformed and who is not. But we do watch, do we not, as lives change. God is at work. He places ideas and he places passions and he places joy within hearts that were rebellious against him. Something's going on there. And as we have, Lord willing, meet next week and seek to invite friends to this assembly as we have our friends Sunday on Sunday, we need to realize what we're up to and you need to realize what you're up to as you invite someone to come with you and hear the Word of God preached. They should see in our lives the transforming evidence of God's power. And they should have to come to terms with that. And none of us are perfect people. And obviously the hypocrite line can be pulled out, that card can be pulled out at any time, at any place by an unbeliever. Let's not worry about that. Let's worry about what we can handle. People should see that our lives are different. They've been transformed. They've been changed. And they should have to come to terms with that. Jesus now illustrates that anyone who does not side with him is subject to the demonic realm. The illustration is given at verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man... It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. What's the house he left? He came out of a man. I'm going to return to the house I left, to the dwelling place that I left, which was this man, which I've left. Verse 25, when it arrives, 
that is back to the man to possess this individual, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Just a few comments. We're not told if the demon is cast out here or just leaves. Let's assume that it leaves because it clearly hasn't been hindered from returning. And I would assume that of Jesus when he cast out a demon, that that demon was not permitted to come back. So let's just assume that much. It doesn't make a lot of difference here in the parable. At any rate, the evil, unclean spirit leaves and looks for a better place to stay in the desert. That was a commonly recognized haunt of demons. And though we don't have all of the details, as I mentioned in the first few phrases of this sermon, we don't have all the details of exactly what the function of demons will, happens to be, and we do not always understand why they look for a place to reside and how that all works. We just have to leave it a little bit in mystery and say that there is some desire on the part of the demonic realm to have a home, to find a place. You remember where Jesus went when he was tempted of Satan. It was out into the desert place. And for some reason, that seems to be the location where demons are and their activity is epitomized. So setting all of what we don't know aside, this demon goes about looking for some other place to reside. We'll just leave it at that. Doesn't find one and comes back to the first man and finds that the house, this is a picture of the man, is swept clean. Matthew adds that it's empty and that's the problem. In other words, while the demon is gone, this man has done some soul-searching. Once possessed by a demon, the man has excitedly now, in the absence of the demon, cleaned up his act. The house is clean and neat, but there's no lock on the door. And the demon comes back and puts his hand on the door and opens the door and takes up residence again. This time, it's a party. And he brings seven other demons with him, and they inhabit this nice, clean, neat house. And they begin by going to the refrigerator. And they start pulling out the things of the house, and they begin in this party to destroy it from within. All neat and swept and clean, but no lock on the door, and no other inhabitant in the house. They come in and take it down further than it was before. What's the point? Verse 26. Then it goes, takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. The parable has direct application to people who are demon-possessed. If a demon leaves an individual, that individual is in a very vulnerable position. But I think speaking to a Christian church in our setting, in our place, I think that we can apply this idea more broadly than to specifically the case of demon possession. I think there is a principle here that applies more broadly. It is this. Moral reformation without spiritual transformation is disastrous. Moral reformation without spiritual transformation is disastrous. You can fall under the influence of the demonic realm for a time. There can be tremendous temptation, and then that temptation is removed for a period of time. 
And during that break, you can energetically pursue moral reform. You can clean up your act. But self-reform only invites greater oppression. Cleaning up your act is dangerous. You need to replace the influence of the demon with the influence of Jesus. Let's use something that's close to home and causing tremendous trial, a place that Satan is actively working today. Let's say that a young man is taken, a man, a husband, single, doesn't matter who, but somebody is taken up with internet pornography and becomes drawn into that trap as Satan works to tempt and to lure and to destroy. And there's a period of time where this man gives himself to that, but then some things happen. Maybe the computer providentially crashes, or there's a break in the action for a period of time, and church attendance picks up again, and there's a little bit more routine, and things change, and it's not quite so tempting at the moment. And the guy says, I'm going to get this figured out, and I'm going to figure out some ways that I'm not going to do this again. And he begins to act in a right way and do the right things. And then comes a season of renewed assault, and it's ten times worse. The assault comes, and the man sinks lower into the depths of this depravity and is taken in. You know, it can happen again. It can be a period of relief and a period of time where, oh, things are all right again. But just cleaning up your act on the outside can bring you right back in deeper again. And the circle just continues to go lower and lower and lower. You've heard of the anaconda, that snake that just wraps itself around you. And as you inhale, take in the air, the snake just kind of goes with that and lets you go. But as you exhale, it clamps down. And you inhale again, and the snake just gives a little bit this time, and you exhale, and it clamps down further. This is how Satan works. One of the schemes that he uses, the anaconda plan, to crush us slowly. There's those times of relief. Listen, when, those, when there are those times of relief, we need to be sure that we are filling the house, as it were. And I'm not speaking here necessarily about actual demonic possession and the like, but just under the temptation of Satan, it's not enough to clean up your act. You've got to go hard after Christ. We could apply this to many other examples. There might be marital trouble that you have, and it sort of comes in, in waves. And then it relieves for a time, and we get some things straightened up, and we act a better way but we really don't get the issue solved at the heart. It might be a drug. It might be a spirit of rebellion. You fill in the details, but this is how the satanic realm works. It just keeps squeezing us and drawing us in. What we need is to be transformed. You can't just sweep the house out. You've got to invite Jesus in. You need more of Christ. 
You need to be drawn to Him, and you need to embrace Him. You have to go hard after Christ, and you have to change your life orientation that Jesus would be who He really is. That you'd see Him and acknowledge Him and relate to Him as the Lord of your heart and life. Now, I think when Jesus speaks here, He's talking to the individual. I think He's probably also talking to Israel. You remember there were some really dirty days in this nation, some days when we worship pagan gods. In fact, we don't like to talk about it, but do you remember there were times when Israelites living in this land offered their children as sacrifices to the idols? Oh, we've swept out our nation. We've cleaned it out. That demon's gone. We're not there any longer. And Jesus sends the warning here, it's worse. It's worse because through moral reform, we are now open to a deeper, perhaps more subtle, but more sadistic plan of Satan. We're a nation of hypocrites. We are a nation in which the Creator God is standing on this land and casts out a demon to defeat the kingdom of Satan. And some of you can say that I'm with Satan. We're in bad shape. It is also true, can be applied, I think, personally. We're applying it broadly, not looking at it specifically. But we face this with temptation and sin. We have got to embrace and go after Christ with all of our heart. While Jesus is speaking, a woman in the crowd cries out, verse 27, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And we're going to talk about this, Lord willing, more in the future. But I want to just conclude here because I think it holds some help to us. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it, says Jesus. Do you notice what he says? Blessed are those who obey the word of God. That's the spirit that needs to fill our hearts as we deal with sin and temptation. It is a fallen and wicked world. Satan's kingdom still operates. But as one commentator summarizes this passage, Daryl Bach, he says, In Christ resides the authority to overcome the destructive forces that stand opposed to humankind, whatever they might be. The miracles of Jesus testify visibly to this authority, an authority etched by God's finger. Are you saved today? You know Christ is your personal Savior. This is a time for us to rejoice when we realize who Jesus is and what he did when he came to this earth. It's a time to rejoice. This passage teaches us in historical form what the Apostle Paul taught us in theological construct in Colossians 1. He, that is Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. I identify with this power of Christ and His coming kingdom. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Perhaps you do not. Perhaps you do not have that sense that you have come to know Him in a personal way and have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The full answer is not in this passage, but there is guidance. Verse 23 is what you need to see. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Are you on Christ's side? If you are not, you need to join it. And verse 28, I think also is a key for you. Blessed are those, says Jesus, who hear the word of God and obey it. He will give you the strength and the power to obey it as you come to Him as Savior. And you should come to Him as Savior. And all of us who have can say together, we should come to Him as Savior because Jesus is in the winning army. Now that's not simply to say we just want to win, but it's to say that He is defeating evil. And we have the privilege to be on his side. Beyond that, Jesus is our provision of forgiveness and entrance into a spiritual kingdom, not of evil and sin, but of righteousness and joy. Are you with him? Are you on his side? Are you on the side of the one who cast out demons and whose kingdom will be established in this world, bringing glory and honor to God forever. We're in a battle, Christian, aren't we? I hope I've gotten through to you on that point alone, that we are in a spiritual battle, and that Christ is the victor. If you don't know that you're in that victory, you need to seek that out today, and we invite you to do so within the context of our meeting here today. If you do know Christ as your Savior, then go after Christ. Pursue Him, know Him, obey His Word, and live for His truth. Don't sweep out your house and leave it empty. Sweep out the sin and put Jesus in its place. Let's pray. Our Father God, we need help with sin. We need help to clean out our house and to invite Christ in more and more. I speak not and pray not in precise theological terms, but in a picture. We need for Jesus to be more at home and to guard the gate of our heart. And we pray, God, that you would help us to obey your word, that we might do that. We thank you for the indwelling Spirit of God that permeates the soul of every believer who is genuinely saved. And we thank you, God. I believe that that presence and that indwelling displaces any demonic possession. But Lord, we are certainly influenced dramatically 
by the satanic realm. And though we don't know everything about it, and perhaps some of our perceptions are wrong, we do know, Lord, that we're in a battle, and we sense it in our own spirit and heart every day. And I pray, God, for your people, that this would be a time where we just face reality, and we set aside those sins that are crushing us. I pray that you'd break off the anaconda in the experience of anyone who needs that deliverance today. I pray that they'd break with the pattern of sin that's drawing them further and further down. And I ask God that they would embrace Christ and walk with you. For any that know you not as Savior, I pray, God, that you would point them to Jesus as the one who bore the penalty of their sin and came in order to deliver them from sin. So just as this man could be delivered from Satan, satanic possession or demonic possession, so they can be delivered from the ravages of sin and be forgiven. Lord, work to that end, we pray, in our midst as a church today. Through Christ I pray. Amen.